Good morning, church. Probably more than any idea uh, across the globe, freedom has been the source of contention, uh, strife, effort, dedication, commitment, and consistency. For what purpose were the pilgrims compelled to cross treacherous seas, face famine, disease, indigenous people, and hardship, but for freedom? Why did men rise up and fight the civil war in this great nation? Freedom. What was it that influenced men and women to go overseas and fight uh, for for the victory of the Allied forces in World War II? It was freedom. This is the part of, of Galatians where Paul makes a transition. Up to this point, he's been giving us specific and direct theological arguments in hopes of emphasizing to his specific audience the need for them to maintain their steadfast commitment to following after the Lord Jesus Christ and maintaining thus their freedom. Up to this point, Paul's given us a couple of ideas that he's contrasted to help us understand what it is his purpose for writing, in fact, is. It's to try and keep the people to whom this letter is directed out from under the law of works and under the law of faith. It's to try and influence that same group of people not to follow after Moses, but instead follow after the Lord Jesus Christ to not be sons and daughters of the slave woman, but sons and daughters of the freed woman. And so Paul's painted this theological landscape for us to to emphasize, not, not, not just for us, but for Christians everywhere across the world, and specifically at the time of this writing, to Christians in the Galatian region, theologically the reasons why they should maintain their commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 5 is the beginning of a shift where Paul moves from theology to practice. So I want to I draw your attention to uh, Galatians chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 1. Those of you who are listening online, I want to welcome you here this morning. All visitors, welcome. We're so glad you're here. You regular attenders, welcome back. Galatians chapter 5, again, is Paul's beginnings of, of his teaching on freedom pragmatically, practically, behaviorally. What does this look like for a Christian, a, 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 a man or woman who is a child of the Lord Jesus Christ? I've broken down this first half of chapter 5 three ways. The first thing we're going to talk about that Paul admonishes his readership about is freedom source. Let's pick up Galatians chapter 5 and verse 1. The Bible says this, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. 
You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. This first part of chapter 5 in talking about freedom source, Paul uses some language that in later writings will sound very familiar to us. The first thing he says is, for freedom's sake, the Lord Jesus Christ has set you free. The Lord Jesus Christ has seen your slavery. He was compelled to be fashioned in likeness as a man and become obedient in that form unto death, even death on a cross. And he bore your cross and your shame such that he might promote your freedom. To make you free, Christ came. Remember, Paul's audience is being influenced by a group of people who are trying to to compel them to convert to Judaism. And I think this passage of Scripture helps us gain a much better understanding of exactly what the nature of that fight looks like. For us here in Western culture today, there are things that we accidentally kind of find ourselves in the middle of that are sinful types of situations. You know, you catch a two and a half pound fish, before the words even get out of your lips, you realize you're already telling a fish story and the two and a half pound fish has turned into a five pound, two ounce fish. And it's like the story, and you're compelled in that moment. I can't stop telling the story, but I know I shouldn't be telling the story. What the Apostle Paul is using here is the reality that nobody accidentally finds themselves in a position where they're getting circumcised. Can I get an amen on that? Some of you guys are like, ooh, that's exactly right. Breathe and then say amen. Circumcision was a deliberate, direct pledge of your conscience and your behavior to a specific school of thought. This is why circumcision was such a big conversion-type issue. It was men who, liter- who quite literally were willing to put their money where their mouth was and not just offer lip service to their desire to follow the law of works, the law of Moses, but to really commit with their body to that specific way of thinking. And for those who were willing to convert, there seemed to be a measure of political advantage The Jewish system afforded people a a whole uh, lifestyle of hierarchical organization that one might uh, progress through the ranks and over time have some authority. The other thing it offered was a, a little bit of a sense that I can do this myself. And we human beings are constantly lured by the enemy with the illusion of control. And we're going to talk about that some. Paul's first point to them is stand firm. Stand firm in the source of freedom. Stand firm in your commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. Stand firm and do not waver. Maintain your commitment to Christ regardless of what the culture around you might be influencing you to do. And this stand firm language would be language we we see later in Pauline writings. He uses this in one of my favorite passages of Scripture in Ephesians 6. I want to draw your attention there this morning. In Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 13, the Apostle Paul says, Therefore, put on the full armor of God, 
so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after having done everything, to stand. That's the same root word that he uses in, in Galatians 5. Just stand. So for Paul, I think the admonishment to stand firm is twofold. First, resist the culture outside you. It's going to pressure you to turn away from Christ and follow after what's political and what's popular and even what seems pleasurable. But stand firm, resist cultural influence, maintain your commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. But the second piece to this stand firm idea that Paul later gives us some insight to in Ephesians 6.13 is stand firm. Firm and resist the enemy you cannot see. I think one question all of us have as, as Christians, and it, it reaches different magnitudes at various points in time in our life, is, is what God, what is the deal with the evil in the world? But friend, I want to tell you that it's so easy to get distracted with the evil that's outside of us and not give one minute of thought to the evil that's right here. That's what Paul is saying here. Stand firm. Resist the enemy. Resist the culture. Maintain your steadfast commitment regardless of the cost. And somehow, as Paul's going to elaborate on in a little bit, that's a function of our freedom. What else does he say? Wait eagerly through the Spirit. Verse 5, or through the Spirit we wait eagerly. By faith, the righteousness for which we hope... Again, my thinking is Galatians Galatians is Paul's earliest writing. And so as you're reading this, you can kind of hear Paul develop a language set and a theological structure that he then maintains over time. This same language is found in Romans 8, verses 19, 23, and 25. The three things that we wait eagerly, or that wait eagerly, our first creation waits eagerly in verse 19. In verse 23, we ourselves wait eagerly. And in verse 25, we gain some insight into what exactly we wait eagerly for. The day of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ and our glorification and ascension into that place that He's prepared for us. No doubt it's with that same thought in mind that He's admonishing His followers in Galatia, the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, Wait eagerly. You have hope. Your hope is not contingent on this life. There's a future that's more beautiful than you can imagine. So remain steadfast and wait eagerly. And whatever you're going through in life today that the enemy would like to divert your attention towards and shake your commitment to Christ and cause your eager anticipation to diminish, my words to you are the same as the Apostle Paul's. Be hopeful and wait eagerly. The day is coming soon. The next thing he says in his first expression is how faith, true authentic faith, expresses itself. And isn't that phrase uh, blown way out of proportion in our culture today? Come on, come on, you've got to express yourself so you can respect yourself. Come on. Somebody just woke up in the back. Dude, he didn't just do. But isn't, isn't that the, the colloquialism, the vernacular that we use in, in our culture? I just want to express myself. Stink on that. As sons and daughters of the Lord Jesus Christ, we can express ourselves the way the Lord Jesus Christ expressed himself. And how is that? Paul shares with us, we express ourselves 
through love. This is what a, a son or daughter of the Lord Jesus Christ really looks like. And we're going to elaborate on this, but Paul wants to give us a little bit of a landscape here before he digs deep. If you're going to express yourself, do so liberally through love. He goes on in in Galatians 5, uh, verse 7, to talk about freedom status. And freedom status at the time of Paul's writing is the same as it is at the time of this preaching. It is under attack. Verse 7, let's pick up right here. You were running a good race. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? That kind of person does not come from one who calls you. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. I'm confident in the Lord that you'll take no other view. The one who is throwing you into confusion, whoever that may be, will have to pay the penalty. Brothers and sisters, if I'm still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. As for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way, not simply circumcising themselves, but emasculating themselves. Early on in Galatians, in the first chapter, the Apostle Paul uses a Greek word, anathema. Let God's curse be on any of those who would compel you to follow after a law other than the law of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Here we get a little bit more a little bit a little bit better visual not that i recommend going there in your mind about the level of emphasis and emotion behind paul's admonishment god's curse be upon these people let them go all the way and just emasculate themselves there could be no stronger language for those people who are cutting in on the races being run by the the christians in the galatian region So what's his admonishment here to freedom status? When you're under attack, what's his admonishment? The first thing he says is, run well. You were running well. Why did you stop? You should have kept going. Who is it that's cut in on you? I I try to do some jogging. And and everybody who is still at the gym after age like 35 is my hero. Like, I used to want to be big and strong and, and, and have it going on. Now I just want to be in the gym at age 35. I'm, I'm training more for fitness than I am anything else. But I've had some humbling experiences in the gym. I'll share one with you that I think kind of illustrates this point. You know, the gyms sometimes have these tracks that you can jog around. And I'm not a fast jogger. I'm not built for speed. And so I'm kind of doing my own pace, you know, and every now and again I, I'm at the gym doing my thing. I hear, on your left, on your left. And that's like gym etiquette for somebody's fixing to blow by you and you're, getting cra- and you're going to get m- bl- blown over if you don't get to your right because they're coming by on your left. So I'm doing it, you know, when it's like an 18-year-old stud probably playing college football, I'm like, yeah, he can go ahead and pass. But there's a time where I'm running by and I hear, on your left, on your left. And I'm kind of going, doing my thing, and this 75-year-old lady just blows right past me. Now I'm trying to go to the gym where, like, no one is there, so I don't have to confront that. But it's like they cut in on you. You know, it's like, man, this is my lane. You're cutting in on my lane. Well, what if somebody, when, I, when you were exercising or doing something like that, or better yet, when you're on a road trip, my wife, my bride and I had the opportunity to go to Kansas and spend Easter with our family. I was so very blessed and fortunate to have the opportunity to do that. And on the way there, we, we run into uh, construction zones, inevitably. 
And there's one right now just south of Little Rock on five, uh, Interstate 530. And it was like a two-hour delay. And with three kids under age seven in the car, it really felt to me in that moment like somebody was just doing this on purpose. You know, they had to know I was coming. They set some stuff up, pretended like it was a long time. Because you get through it, and what? It's like no, there's no reason for things to be that slowed down. <laughs> Come on now. So I, 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 I'm thinking there's some coincidence here. There's somebody who's trying to really test my patience. And, of course, that's not the truth. And, and one of my enraged fantasies probably I imagined it to be. But what if in your spiritual life it was really like that? Somebody was deliberately plotting against the race you were running or the path that you were traveling down and intentionally trying to set up an obstruction in your path. This is what Paul is saying is happening to the church that he's writing to or the churches that he's writing to. In our culture today, that's a really hard thing to identify because for us it's not a person or a group of people that are usually saying, hey, relinquish your faith in Christ and come follow after us. We offer all this great stuff. There are those faiths that certainly in our culture do compete with the lordship of Jesus Christ. But for me, the most competition is found in our culture at large. And what we wanted to do is elevate freedom that is flesh-based above freedom that is spiritual. And so our culture takes the issue, for example, of marriage, elevates it to a, a level above spiritual importance, and then tries to force the church to accept and assimilate marriage between same-gendered individuals. And us right here in West Monroe, Louisiana, we even still don't have a good sense of what's going on in the church today and how the church is coming under attack by the culture and how even mainline denominations are relinquishing truth because our culture has cut in on them and instead are assimilating what the culture accepts as good, right, true, and free and relinquishing what God says is free. Paul would say, run well by staying focused. What's he say? I'm convinced that you will maintain this view and take no other view. What view is that? That Jesus Christ is Lord, that he's the way, the truth, and the life. And if I head towards the cross and, and emulate and imitate the Lord Jesus Christ then I'm headed in the right direction and I'm running my race well. When freedom is under attack, that's our method of operation. To run well, avoid the roadblocks, resist cultural influence, maintain scriptural integrity and infallibility, and stay focused on the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm convinced we're probably not under any less pressure today than some of the churches in the Galatian region were at the time they were being persecuted. Our persecution is so much more difficult to see for most of us. From there, the Apostle Paul goes on and talks to us about freedom situation. In verse 13, he says this, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbors as yourself. For if you bite and devour one another, 
Watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. Freedom situation is action. Freedom situation is not theory. It's one thing to simply talk about our freedom in Christ, read Scripture, and get a sense for what that means spiritually. It's a completely different phenomenon to put some legs and effort behind the nature of my freedom. But this is where things can get really complex because of how our culture would define freedom. What the Apostle Paul would say is it's very, very important to understand freedom in, con- in the context of sin. Right when he says, my brothers and sisters, you were called to be free, he gives us some insight into what specifically that means for a Christian by using a conjunction, the word but, and then another sentence to help us gain some insight on what the call to be free for sons and daughters of the Lord Jesus Christ really means. And one thing that you can be 100% certain of, freedom for the Christian has nothing to do with your ability to sin. Freedom for the Christian is not freedom to commit sin. It's freedom from the consequences of your sin. Did you catch that? Freedom for the Christian is not freedom to commit sin. It's freedom from the consequences thereof as you diligently and desperately try and live out an obedient Christ-like life right here on earth. He says, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but don't think your freedom is cause for now indulgence and doing whatever you want. On the contrary, don't use your freedom to indulge your flesh. Our culture would like to say that freedom is your ability to do what you want to do. That's egocentrism in my field. That's me as the center of the axis of the world with the world revolving around me, and it exists for my pleasure. It's egocentrism. And our culture would say that freedom is is had when you find yourself at a place where you can do whatever you want to do. Paul would say that's garbage, that's trash. What else our culture would say is freedom really is your right to be you. Now, as I say that, some of you are, are even thinking, well, wait a second, wait a second. Our culture would say freedom is your freedom to be you, that you know the right way, that your motives are pure, that you don't have to listen to anybody else, that what you want is right, you can get it when you want it, how you want it, as easy as you want it, just do it, just be you, you're free to be you, just don't let anybody else tell you how to do it and how not to do it. And that's narcissism, that I'm God-like and that I know what's best and that my way is the right way. And I can tell you personally, professionally, and theologically that that is a lie from the enemy himself. Paul in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 1 would, would indicate to a church that he dearly loved that he was a slave. A slave to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now isn't that unique? That the same guy who is an apparent theological expert in freedom would, it would give us indication later on in his writings that he considers himself a slave? How do you reconcile those two ideas? Paul, from one angle you're telling me you're free and that we've been given freedom in Christ and Christ has set us free for freedom's sake. And then another time you write, you're saying you're a slave to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is in that thought 
that we arrive at the very depths of spirituality itself. Friend, let me tell you this. Everyone under the sound of my voice is free to the degree you realize you are controlled. Everybody under the sound of my voice, you are free to the degree you realize you're controlled. What, is that? what do I mean by that? Something is constantly influencing you. 100% of the time, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year. And you're going to tend to behave and think along the lines of whatever it is that you're most influenced by. And in my life, I want to align myself, even enslave myself, with the one being who promises my liberty regardless of circumstance. Who promises my peace in the midst of hardship, who promises joy that's complete and sustainable, that's not contextually influenced, who promised that not even death or the grave would have power over me anymore, but that who would deliver me when I met my maker after my time on this earth had ended. That's the person I want to be enslaved to, and that's true freedom, to be under the leadership, the lordship, and enslaved to that level of power, love, and might, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Freedom in Christ is free from the consequences of sin. That's spiritual freedom. And freedom in Christ is free to become what God wants us to become. Let's say we're right that the Lord Jesus Christ really is the Son of God and God created each of us with a purpose. Then we don't fully realize true freedom until we start to live that purpose out. That's the nature of freedom. And there is a right way to do it. And it does involve surrendering fully to the Lord Jesus Christ. And friend, when you make the decision to fully surrender, I promise you freedom naturally follows. We're called to be free. We're also called to serve. Some theologians have described the most humble servant on planet earth as the Lord Jesus Christ. As as the Apostle Paul says, you were called to be free, not to use your freedom to indulge the, ple- the flesh, but freedom to serve one another humbly in love. I- I'm reminded that the way we really live, the way Jesus Christ lived, is by really truly loving our brethren and serving them humbly. And I'm not one of these people that really ascribes to a specific purpose for your life. As much as I'm, I'm one of these people that ascribes to a specific plan to love, serve, and humbly relate to others every single day of your life. That's your call. That's your purpose. That's your plan. That's the secret. That's why you're here. If you would totally surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ and to mit, commit to that idea, you would really be free. The Apostle Paul concludes this thought in in Galatians 5 in the same way he began. And so we're really right back where we started. He says, you've been called to freedom so that you can love one another. And he reminds us of the greatest command that the Lord Jesus Christ so eloquently and clearly gave to us. And remember, Paul has transitioned now. He spoke theologically He's given you scriptural Old Testament examples as to how freedom theologically works. 
And now he's showing you this is what it looks like when you put some effort behind it. And what does he say that is? It's love. It's love. So stand firm. Stand firm, my friends, and wait eagerly and express yourself constantly and completely as often as you feel like it by humbly loving and serving those that God has put in your path. I'm going to take a moment to pray. And after I do that, we're going to give you a moment to respond. We want to pray with you. We want to encourage you and fellowship with you today. After I pray, you have that opportunity. Let's pray. Lord, we love you so much and we thank you for your word and for the freedom we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we don't even really have a good way of saying that other than we praise you, we honor you, and we glorify you. Those listening online, visitors who are here, our regular attenders, God, I hope that you help us put some effort behind our freedom and that we won't ever take lightly the life, the love, and the sacrifice that our Lord Jesus Christ made so that we might really be free. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.